Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. Today, I'm privileged to be speaking with Dr. Brittany Halford. She's an MD and MPH. She attended the University of Michigan for undergrad, completed medical school at the Feinberg School of Medicine. Uh, it's Northwestern. She completed an internal medicine residency program and practiced as a hospitalist at Emory before moving on to uh, work in Boston. Dr. Halford is an entrepreneur, wife, mother, and a financial guru. So, Dr. Halford, thank you so much for joining me on the program. Dr. Bradley, thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, you can call me Stephen. Uh, okay, if I call you Brittany. Yes, please. <laughs> okay, perfect. So, tell me a little bit about your current practice and uh, what you do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, so I am an internal medicine physician um, practicing as a hospitalist. So what that means is I take care of patients when they come into the hospital, when they're acutely ill. And um, typically my schedule is a seven days on, seven days off. There is some fluctuation to that schedule. And, you know, it, it provides me an opportunity to really engage in many different levels. You know, I work with consultants. So if a patient comes in and they're having an acute heart attack, then I'll contact the cardiologist or if they have some type of small bowel obstruction, but they're admitted to medicine, then I'll consult a surgeon. So, you know, I do a breadth of things, um, but really just focusing in on that acute illness and taking care of patients when they're, when they're in the hospital. What's the favorite thing that you love about your job? I think my favorite thing is the patient care. You know, what I loved about internal medicine was the rapport that you can form with patients. But as I transitioned from residency to my attending position, um, we moved a couple of times. So we moved from Atlanta to Boston. And I really didn't think that I would have an opportunity to have an outpatient cohort. But as a hospitalist, oftentimes patients are there for seven days and people come to the same hospital. So I see, Mm -hmm. you know, just a week ago, I saw a guy who I took care of in May. And so I still had that rapport and that continuity. um, And I think that's what I love most. And when did you decide to become a hospitalist? It was in probably my third year in residency because I liked a little bit of everything, but I really couldn't um, pinpoint just one specific thing that I really wanted to delve into a little bit more. In addition, I actually did like critical care, but I just didn't think that that would work for my lifestyle. So I did not pursue a critical care fellowship. And when exactly did you decide to become a physician? Well, if you were to ask my mom, she would say when I was like three. (laughs) Um, But we actually have documentation. So my dad is an academic and I have um, three other cousins who are around the same age. So we would always do like a cousin swap. And when my dad had us, he would make us do work. So he had us write (laughs) down what we wanted to be when we grew up. And he saved them from when we were seven years old. And so was, he pulled them. Up. Was he the favorite? Was he the favorite uncle for that, or no? Of, of course not. He corrected <laughs> your grandma. You didn't have any um, snacks when you came to Uncle Tony's. <laughs> it was like all fruits and vegetables. But that was my dad, so you gotta love him. But he had us write down what we wanted to be when we grew up, and we were seven. And I wrote down that I wanted to be a doctor. So it's documented, and we have proof that I wanted to be a doctor when I was seven years old. At seven, you made this huge life decision. You completed <laughs> high school. You went to University of Michigan. What was your experiences there and how did that help you in that path to medical school? 
So going to the University of Michigan was great. I had a full tuition scholarship, so that helped to save money on student debt. I just had to pay for room and board. And then during my second year of undergrad, I became a um, an RA, a resident assistant, and so that paid for my room and board. You know, it was a phenomenal experience. Well, one, I had I, you've talked about this before, you know, like imposter syndrome. So I'm from Flint, Michigan. So I remember I went to this party and it was not necessarily a black party, um, but there were some, you know, black people there who knew of Flint, Michigan. And so I was discussing where I was from with this one guy and he said, oh man, I'm glad you made it out. Have you ever seen anyone get murdered? And I'm like, no. (laughs) So so you got some of that. You know, I I remember almost failing an exam. So, but other than just the usual things that you get in your first year, second year of college, Michigan afforded me many opportunities. I traveled abroad. I went to Ghana um, and I did some research on sickle cell as well as going to Chile, and I got an opportunity to perfect my Spanish. And those were all paid for in undergrad. So I, I love my Michigan uh, education. I bleed uh, blue always. Hablas <laughs> espanol. <laughs> sí, un poquito. Sí, sí hablo más o menos. <laughs> we, know, we know your travel because you pronounced uh, uh, Chile the right way. <laughs> right. Um, so from undergrad to medical school, how was the application process for you? Well, I had to take the MCAT twice. You know, I, I really struggled with standardized testing. But other than that, I think the application process went, I guess, as smoothly as I could, as it could have. I had, again, some imposter syndrome, so I probably did not apply to all the schools that potentially would have accepted me. I remember my Northwestern interview and being from Flint, Michigan was a hot topic even before the Flint water crisis. So I spoke, I spoke a lot about where, where I grew up, but overall, I, I think it was a pleasant experience. There were some challenges, you know, when I took the MCAT twice, I think that that was the biggest challenge and that I really didn't have anyone to like navigate me through that process. Our um, counselors at Michigan were really good. And I I had a few friends who had matriculated through medical school who were helpful. Um, But I think that that was that was a big challenge as well. And then how was your time at Northwestern in Chicago? So I love Chicago. Kevin and I actually met in Chicago at the House of Blues. Okay. Um, and Kevin is my husband for the listeners who don't know. So uh, Chicago was great. Northwestern was great. I think when, when I interviewed there, one of the things that struck me is I wanted to be a physician who served the underserved because just being a minority in medicine and being from Flint, Michigan, the healthcare disparities touched my family. I mean, more times than not, you know, my aunt Val was diagnosed with um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and she died, you know, from what what could have been treated pretty easily. But there was a delay in diagnosis. My grandmother, you know, she had a stroke um, undergoing a carotid and diarterectomy and It happens, right? But I think if she had not gotten that done in Flint, Michigan, and had been at an academic center, then that wouldn't have happened. And so that led to her death. So I just seen, you know, 
just health care disparities touch my family personally. And so I wanted to be a physician who served the underserved. And when I interviewed at Northwestern, I didn't really see how I would get that opportunity being at such a prestigious hospital, living in Streeterville. But thankfully, I was able to uh, do rotations at Stroger Hospital, which is the public hospital. I don't even know if it's still Mm -hmm. called Stroger, um, in Chicago, which afforded me that opportunity as well as volunteering in some of the free clinics. um, And that also afforded me opportunities to learn underserved care. Yeah, I think and what you said was so important because when people talk about healthcare disparities, it can be something as simple as not having access to the same quality healthcare. Uh-huh. I mean, that's usually what it is, but you know, not all hospitals and hospital systems are the same. So when lower income areas or underserved areas can't afford to bring uh, highly skilled practitioners, then that that quality of care is not what it should be. Yeah, I mean, you're so right, Stephen. We see it now. I mean, we're seeing it play out now in this in this COVID pandemic. And so I've been encouraging my family, like, please stay home. As a female physician, what what challenges or obstacles have you overcome during your, your time in training or your time in practice that, you know, other male colleagues may not have dealt with? Um, I think one is just being heard. We know that um, there have been studies that have shown you know, when there's uh, someone who's introducing a female speaker, they will call them by their first name um, instead of saying doctor so-and-so, and they will use that as the title to introduce a speaker if they were a male. Oftentimes, I think, you know, our contribution is not valued as heavily. And so I've had that happen to me where I say something and it just kind of gets ignored. And then and maybe mm-hmm. my male colleague or someone else would say it. And and then they're like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, other things just with just physical appearance, you know, having to be concerned about <laughs> what your hair looks like as a black woman physician. I've had people like touch my hair or say mm-hmm. that hair is not unprofessional or, you know, so I think just some of those challenges you're always perceived as the nurse when you walk into the room. Um, And even when you call a family, you discuss that you are the doctor, you're talking, you know, very intelligently about the medical illness and treatment plans, and you're still (laughs) called the nurse at the end. So I think that that, those are big things. Um, and And negotiation. So when I started my job here in Boston, I actually negotiated for a few things, and I read a book, uh, Women Don't Ask, about how women, we just don't, we don't negotiate, or even that, you know, lean in. We don't, we don't sit at the table often and apply for leadership positions because we feel like we need to, we need to check off each and every box when we don't, men don't do that. And so I myself have had to kind of take myself outside of it and say, okay, Brittany, you are qualified. And if you're not qualified, we can fake it till we make it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. go ahead everybody, and Everybody else does. Right, exactly. So I think that those are some of the, the personal challenges and also, you know, just like environmental being in medicine challenges. Balancing work and life ha- has been a challenge too, uh, to be honest, where I don't know if Kevin would say, I'm sure he would say that he does have um, some difficulty balancing it all, but probably a little less than me. And it's uh, it's bigger than, you know, not being considered a nurse. It's the fact that you've completed, you know, a 
to 12 years of education and that's some people can only perceive females as nurses in a hospital setting and that's something that we have to actively work together to change that perception so no dig on nurses um, but this is a story that needs to be told it needs to be told again and again until it starts to change Yes. And thank you. Thank you, Stephen, for saying that, because I love my nurses. You guys are my eyes and my ears. And so we work together, you know, for patient care. But as you mentioned, it's it's that it's always assumed that we're the nurses, that that women can only be nurses, that women are, you know, equally as qualified to be physicians. Talking about juggling a, a very busy schedule, I know you're involved in quite a few extracurricular activities you're, you have your Instagram account, Brittany Halford, um, that's B-R-I-T-T-N-E-H-A-L-F-O-R-D, Brittany Halford on Instagram. There you talk a lot about finances um, and give financial education, but you also are involved in a couple other side businesses and projects, one of which being the Satin Stretch Wrap. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, um, and thank you for mentioning. So, after residency, I had a little bit more space to do things that I've always loved to do. So growing up, I was a tinkerer. I was always putting things together, you know, improvising. And I think mostly because I'm very frugal. So I'm like, okay, I'm not paying for this. I'm going to figure out another way to do yo, this. Yo, tambien. See, <laughs> <laughs> si, entonces. Um, and then... I I was having some struggles with my hair. Um, I have a lot of shrinkage, so I have natural hair and I have a lot of shrinkage. For those of you who don't know what shrinkage is, is that a, a textured hair can be so curly that when it gets wet and it dries, it shrinks up really tight. And so all those coils are just really tight. And for me, the problem is, is that it causes single-stranded knots, which cause breakage. So I was looking for a solution to that, but I didn't like going to the salon and having them blow dry my hair because the heat also caused damage. So what I developed after tinkering were the satin stretch wraps, which is a non-heat way to stretch your hair and it um, minimizes shrinkage. But because I'm also frugal, I wanted to make sure that it didn't just do one one thing. So um, it also can be used as a curling tool to curl your hair. So it's a multi-use tool that I've developed for natural hair. Um, and that really just came out of just having the mental space, but also having some of the financial space to pursue something that I didn't know if it would work or not, but I thought that it was um, worth a try and worth um, an investment. Um, so I, I'm very grateful for, for that opportunity. And they will be coming onto the market soon. We've had another hiccup in China getting them manufactured, but hopefully by the end of this year. Incredible. I, I learned so much about shrinkage and I actually have five <laughs> sisters but thank you for for that additionally you're involved in an Etsy shop what is a uh, Bramlin and, and Rose yes so Bramlin and Rose um is a shop where we create and as I say we is really my aunt Rose um hair accessories for um babies uh, girls and, and women and they're all satin lined so my aunt rose is kind of like she's like my second mom she's the one who have 
has done all of these like creative activities with me even as a young child she would always color with me and we would always do these craft projects scrapbooking refurbishing so she had come here in Boston to watch um, Brooke. She and my mom, when Kevin and I took our vacation, and she brought her sewing machine. <clears throat> and I have my headbands that are satin lined. I sleep on a satin pillowcase. But she realized that uh, my daughter, Brooke, didn't have any satin lined headbands. And so she pulled out her sewing machine. She said, you know what? We can create her, <laughs> her some headbands and put the satin lining so we can protect her hair. Um, the whole philosophy of, of satin, sleeping on satin, is that it does not absorb the moisture from texture hair. And we know that that's a problem. You know, moisture retention is a huge problem for texture hair. So, you know, as I'm putting hats and caps and all these headbands on her hair. She wanted to make sure that her hair was protected. So we started out small um, with an Etsy shop. And so far we've grown. It's It's been two months and uh, we have grossed about $3,000 in selling headbands. And so I am helping her to get started with her Shopify store. So that should be launching soon as well. Awesome. I'm taking notes over here. So I need to get a satin pillowcase to help... <laughs> minimize my shrinkage and breakage and keep my hair moisturized there you go all right um to round out all these incredible things you you, you do your husband uh kevin is also in the healthcare field how has that been um being able to work together additionally to raise your daughter brooke so it's, it's a incredibly busy household how does that work yeah so we have a joint calendar we, every Sunday, we talk about our schedule for the week just to make sure we've had a couple of communication snafus where we didn't have childcare or something wasn't on the calendar and it went amiss. So that's mainly how we're working together is making sure that our communication is on key and also very transparent. For me, how I've managed work and life is I realized that I'm not superwoman. And so what that means is that, you know, I have to ask for help to help me to, you know, make sure that we have food on the table and Kevin does some grocery shopping too and cooking too. Then I also ask myself, and this is some advice that my mentor gave me is asking yourself what brings you joy. Mm -hmm. And so I asked myself what brings me joy and I try to make sure that I do those things and only those things. And I, I use this question to evaluate opportunities that are presented to me at work. Um, like, is this going to bring me joy? And if no, then I go to say, okay, well, will it help me to meet a goal? And that goal could be becoming a better writer, for example. So if someone's like, hey, does anyone want to help with this review article? Well, it's not going to bring me joy to write, but my goal is to become a better writer. So yes, I will say yes to that. So I try to negotiate my time by using kind of those two questions. And then if there's something that only I can do, then of course I got to do it. But if there's something that someone else can do, then I try to uh, designate that task. So our nanny helps us out a lot. At first, I was very fearful of asking her to like cook a meal or you know, do some laundry, but a girl got to eat, but I don't have to eat like <laughs> food that I cook only, right. right? So somebody else can cook the food for me. And um, so that's what I've, I've, I've just tried to use those questions and like that thought process to evaluate opportunities and the tasks that need to be done so that I would have more space for me, more space for Brooke, more space for Kevin, and to make sure that I'm just doing the things that are going to bring, bring me the most joy. 
Awesome. And I think that group calendar uh, is a great idea. It, I could definitely see how that is effective and how that really helps you guys uh, maintain two incredibly busy schedule, three, three incredibly busy schedules if you count uh, Brooke, because I'm sure she's got a lot on her plate too. Is, yes. is Brooke helping you make these uh, satin head wraps? <laughs> she's not, but she likes <laughs> to take them out and play with them. Good, good. We make sure no uh, child labor laws are being violated in the <laughs> I know, right? Halford <laughs> household. Awesome. Um, I definitely want to talk about this huge topic because you you have a number of posts about this on your Instagram page. Um, finances. You've uh-huh. been able to pay off all your student loans. Um, talking with Kevin, your husband. You know, you're just a financial wizard, and you're using social media to spread all these messages and advice and tips. So the floor is yours. Um, you know, whatever you want to tell our listeners um, about finances and, and how to uh, better ourselves. And I'm, I'm taking notes myself. <laughs> well, thank you. So where do we start? I guess, you know, I think the first place is that we all need to become financially literate because is not taught in school. And I am very grateful to my parents. So both of my parents were economic majors and both of them are extremely frugal. Like my dad is, yeah, extremely frugal. (laughs) (laughs) But they taught me how to manage money. And being from Flint, Michigan, although like I never struggled, I saw people struggling around me all the time. And so I knew that I never wanted to, to be in that position. So during residency, I started to listen to Marketplace Money on NPR. So it's a program on NPR, Marketplace Money. And if you can go back really far, then they had a lot of about personal finance. So I learned about compounding interest, which I had never thought of before. So compounding interest is basically the addition of interest to your principal. So whatever it is for your debt, um, if you're talking about debt, And then on top of that, they're going to charge you interest. So basically, it's interest on your interest. And I hated that. Like, you are making more money off of me every month because you're charging interest on my interest. I I absolutely hate losing money. So compounding also works in a positive way. You know, like if you have investments, right? So whatever you earn for that investment, then that's going to add to whatever your balance was before. And you'll earn more interest. on, on that investment. So it works, it works both ways. So I, but I had no understanding of compounding interest before. I had no understanding about like my credit to debt utilization ratio. And basically that's like, if you have $2,000 available in credit, right on a credit card, but you go and you spend a thousand dollars, then that credit to debt utilization ratio is going to be 50% because you've used $1,000 of your available $2,000. And when that happens, when you're using too much of your credit, then that can hurt your credit score. And so you want to keep that number to about 30% or less. Hmm. I would say zero, but you know, I know we're not all there yet. (laughs) Okay. Let's not get carried away. But, you know, so I just started to delve into learning more about personal finance. You know, I I read The White Coat Investor and with my student loans, you know, when I graduated from from medical school, I didn't have any. I only had ten thousand dollars from undergrad and I paid that off during my summer um, job. So when I graduated from medical school, I had one hundred and thirty one thousand dollars in debt and that 
started to grow, you know, because it was mm-hmm. interest during residency. And I just hated, I just hated that I had this much debt and every month I had to pay money to someone. And then they were earning interest on my interest. So every, you know, <laughs> every year it was like more money, like all of my payments weren't even touching my principal. So I really hated that. So during residency, I know a lot of like my co-residents, they deferred payments or or they put their loans in forbearance and I just didn't, I didn't want to do any of that. So I started paying with like an income driven payment plan. And then as soon as I graduated from residency, I started to think about, okay, how can I refinance these loans? Because I had $131,000 debt at 6.5%, and that was too much. And there were um, cheaper or lower interest um, rates offerings. And and this was with you making payments in residency, correct? So um, when I paid re- payments in residency, at the end of residency, I had $138,000. So during, even with making payments in residency, $7,000 in interest accrued. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, in residency, you know, you're not making that much money. So the payments right. were like $200, $300. But anytime I had an extra $20, like even an extra $20, I would add that to it just to knock it off. You know, so I was very, I was very frugal in residency. I lived in a cheap place. I made sure that it was a safe neighborhood. I, I shopped at Audi's. I cooked my meals. I, I, you know, or used the free resident meals. So I lived, I lived very cheaply. The most that I spent money on was probably travel to go and see Kevin. Okay. So when I finished residency, I refinanced my loans with SoFi, but there are many different companies out there. And with refinancing my loans, basically what that is, is that you sell your loan, you know, so it goes from federal to a private bank and they give you a lower interest rate. So by doing that, I was able to decrease my interest rate to about 3.25%. And so that saves a lot of money in interest. So that allows more of that money that I'm applying to um, my student loans to go towards the principal. But what that also does is it increases your loan payments because there's no income-driven repayment plan. Maybe some banks will offer it, but as an attending physician, this was the payment that I had. So my Payments went from, they probably would have been about $1,200 as an attending um, to about $2,500 a month that I paid when I refinanced my loans. But it allowed me to be like super aggressive. So I made a budget and I used this joy budgeting technique. So I made a budget based upon my joy budgeting technique. And I can talk about that in a little bit. And anything in addition to that, that I had saved over, um, then I just applied it to my student loans. So I was really aggressive at knocking down my student loans. And I was able to pay them off $138,000 in three and a half years. That's while investing, because I wanted to invest in my 401k, because mm-hmm. compounding, remember, works both ways. So, you know, I didn't want to wait until I paid off all of my debt to start compounding. And plus, my job matched. So I didn't want to miss that match. <laughs> and um, Kevin and I were investing in, you know, mutual funds and ETFs. And and uh, we also saved up for an emergency plan. 
Um, and we um, also took a couple of trips, you know, outside of the country. So with this joy budgeting method, basically, I just ask myself again, what brings me joy? And so one of those things that brought me joy or brings me joy is traveling and seeing new places. So I made that a priority. So traveling was a line item on my budget, you know, and then there were a couple of other things that you know, brought me joy. So I would allow myself to have three line items for joy. And so that could be ice cream. I like to eat ice cream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get ice cream every week. That's a line item on my, um, on my oh, budget, geez. you know, and I budget that first. It's a priority. That's my joy priority. So I made sure that I budgeted the stuff that brought me joy first and then my financial goals second and everything else if it was like eating out, that doesn't bring me joy. So the eating out budget or line item on my budget was very low, minimal. And so if I had to take something away, I made sure that I took the money away from the areas that don't, don't bring me joy, but usually people spend a lot of money on. And so that I can reallocate those funds to what brings me joy. And as I'm knocking down debt, as long as I have my ice cream, as long as I'm able to travel, it makes this other part that I'm being more restrictive in these other categories more sustainable. And so that's the method that that I use to to knock down my debt and and to do it in a way that I'm still like really enjoying life. So we were able to travel to India. We were able to travel to Hawaii. Now I am married, so like a lot of my living expenses are shared. When we go to India, I'm sharing a hotel with someone who can also help me pay for it. You know, so I do have that benefit. But um, yeah, so that's how that's that's how I knock down debt. And it sounds simple. I mean, it was it. I don't think that it was. Um, it wasn't painful. You know, that's why we do the joy budgeting and the joy priorities. Like I don't have to eat out all week as long as I can have my ice cream on Friday. I'm cool. Um, but yeah. And, and how does that joy budgeting system work uh, with your spouse, with Kevin? How, how do you integrate each other's uh, wants and needs? Yeah. So we, um, we manage our finances a little bit differently. So I am the frugal person and Kevin is more of a spender. Mm. Um, which, <laughs> but I think it works out actually, because there are some things that I'm frugal on, and it, <laughs> Stephen, it just does not make sense. <laughs> like when I tell Kevin, I'm like, okay, so I'm gonna share, and I don't know how much time we have, but I'm gonna oh, share. Oh, take your time. <laughs> so. When we were getting married, you know, Kevin contributed to the wedding. I contributed to the wedding. And I wanted to find these charger plates. I found these charger plates on, on Craigslist. I went to Chicago. Mind you, I was living in St. Louis, okay? And the wedding was in Michigan. Oh. <laughs> so this made no sense. I went to Chicago to visit a friend. I met up with someone, got these charger plates. I didn't think what, about Wait, what, how... what are these? Oh, charger plates? Uh, so... I'm real basic. <laughs> you got it? <laughs> <laughs> so when you go to the wedding, you know, there are usually like a, a decorative plate that's holding your spot. And then when they come to, do, you know, um, pass out the meal, then they bring a plated meal and sit it right on that charger plate. Oh. So it's a more decorative plate that you use as a place setting at weddings. I'm learning all kinds of things. Okay. <laughs> So St. Louis, Chicago, and Michigan, and we're driving, we're hunting for charger plates. Yes, we're hunting for charger plates, but I didn't drive. <laughs> I took the train, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't think about how heavy these plates would be. 
And so I go to Chicago to get these plates and I can't fit the plates in my suitcase oh, <laughs> because no. they're so big and heavy. And then I have to pull them on the train. And I I probably say maybe, maybe in the grand scheme of things, about $75. But it was not oh, worth it no. because it did not make logical <laughs> sense. What did Kevin say? You know, Kevin was very supportive. He supports me a lot, actually. So when I, I ended up getting them on the train and he picked me up from the train and he, of course, is much stronger than I am. So they were even a little heavy for him, but he wasn't struggling like me. And he just shook his head. He just shook his head. The suitcase was broken. <laughs> it was, it oh, was no. a disaster. And so there are times like that where the frugality just does not make logical sense. When you think about your time and your effort and the cost savings, it, it doesn't equate. So I'm happy to have, you know, someone who spends money and can provide an alternative perspective. Um, but going to how we split up <laughs> our finances, sorry, that was, that was a tangent. <laughs> oh, it was, that was well worth it. <laughs> it was so heavy. I wish you could see me <laughs> trying to pull these things to the train station. <laughs> um, so, so we separate our finances a little bit differently, or I don't know how other people do it, but <clears throat> we sit down and at each year, um, the beginning of the year, we write down our financial goals. So, you know, we might say, okay, I want to have, we want to have another baby this year. We want to take a trip. Like we went to Mexico. So we want to take a big trip this year and, you know, we want to pay for Brooke's schooling. So whatever our big expenses are, um, then we, we budget those things out. <clears throat> And then we budget out our financial goals. Okay, we want to save for a house in five years. And we budget those things out. And so when we have a joint account, that is a joint savings account, that is an online savings account. So we use Discover, and that's because the brick-and-mortar banks, don't you don't earn any interest. So for Discover, it's like 1.5% annual percentage yield. So we earn money on our money. So uh, we keep hmm. the bulk of our money there in an online savings account. And we budget for all of our financial goals, um, for all of you know our <clears throat> expenses, big expenses that are joint expenses. So we do that kind of at the beginning of the year. And then we look at our cash flow, you know, which includes like our rent, um, gas, things of that nature. And we budget out those as well well and so we have our you know savings account online then we have our checkings account that is in a brick and mortar bank that handles our day-to-day month-to-month expenses and then whatever is left over from what he contributes to our day-to-day from what he contributes to our savings um, and our financial goals and for me the same thing whatever is left over he has his money and I have my money. And so we can do whatever we want with those mo- that money without questions asked. So I spend a lot of my money on entrepreneurial things like mm-hmm. the stretch wraps and Bramlin and Rose. And he spends his money on other things that he enjoys. And so that allows us to have some financial freedom that we don't have to go to our spouse each day to say, hey, I want to buy, you know, a $500 bag. You know, no, you work hard. So if you want that $500 back, then you buy it. Um, so that's kind of how we, we break up our finances. But we make sure that all the common um, 
expenses are paid for, that we have our financial goals budgeted, you know, based upon our joy priorities. And, and what brings me joy and what brings him joy can be different. But then, you know, we both like to spend time and travel. So that's part of a big joy priority. Um, and then we get to budget our, our leftover money, our personal money, however we choose. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing about your life, sharing um, about the different experiences you've had as a female physician, and especially the last uh, several minutes on finances. I know I learned a lot. I know our listeners will learn a lot. Disclaimer, the Black Artist Podcast is not sponsored by any of the uh, entities mentioned. Uh, if SoFi wants to chip in, holla at your boy. <laughs> Dr. Halford, as we wrap up, would you let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you and how they can follow on with your different uh, endeavors? Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram mostly, and that is Brittany Halford. Um, that's my handle on Instagram. Um, additionally, I have created for you guys, I talked about the joy budgeting, so I've created a freebie for you guys because, you know, I realized that many people don't have this financial literacy or they don't even know where to start. Um, and so that can be a challenge. So I created my joy budgeting method just for you guys and you can find it free. And I found a free hosting place and that is at pay hip. So P A Y H I P.com. And that's the forward slash the joy budgeting method. And there it will take you to um, where you can, you'll see the icon and you click to purchase for $10.99. But I'm going to give you guys a coupon code of Black Doc, B L A C K D O C. Black Doc, you enter that and it's free. And so it's a, just a digital download of my joy budgeting method. What? We got freebies? Okay. All right. Dr. Hoff, we appreciate you. Thank you so much for all you're doing. There you, there you have it. Uh, Black Doc for the coupon code. Be sure to go download this and uh, check her out on Instagram. Uh, Brittany, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of the Black Doctors Podcast. If you like what you heard, please uh, share, leave a message or a comment as well. Tune in next week to hear more of our stories told by us on the Black Doctors Podcast.